Welcome to Alcohol Across America with your host, Dr. Brad Crever, along with a weekly panel of co-hosts. Our program examines the impact of beverage alcohol on public health and safety, the nation's economy, and American culture. Each week, we discuss current trends and issues. Now, here's your host, Dr. Brad Crever. Welcome to Alcohol Across America, our weekly examination of the changing alcohol industry and the impact of alcohol upon our culture, our health, and our communities. I'm Brad Crever, and today our focus is civil litigation and restorative justice for alcohol-related harms. And my co-host today is Dr. Mark Willingham. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Brad. Mark, before we uh, focus on the alcohol and litigation, could you relate your rather interesting career arc that led you to your current work as an expert witness and litigation consultant in alcohol-related injury and death civil litigation? Certainly, I would be pleased to do so. Uh, As you know, and, and some of our listeners may also know, I worked for the Florida Division of Alcoholic Beverages and Tobacco for almost 30 years, retiring as a state law enforcement major. During that time, I licensed alcoholic beverage establishments, I regulated them, I assisted them in uh, providing safe and lawful service of alcohol to, uh, uh, to citizens uh, in the state of Florida. I obtained a PhD in, um, uh, in uh, business and corporate security focused on responsible alcohol retailing, and I have spent um, my, over the last 45 years, Uh, looking at responsible alcohol retailing issues, both domestically and internationally. Uh, I retired from the division and uh, really didn't have a focus on what to do. And our guest, Fred Tromberg, called me up and asked me if I could help him with a civil lawsuit against an alcoholic beverage establishment because of an alcohol-related harm also known as a Dram Shop Act. And I did that case uh, along with Fred and it turned out to be a successful lawsuit. And because of that, I found a niche. I found other lawyers, uh, both uh, trial lawyers and defense lawyers, who could utilize someone with my set of, um, of uh, skills and, and my knowledge uh, in this, this arena. And that's how I became involved in it. How different is the perspective you have now working after the fact uh, in, in litigation than when you were working as an officer? Well, my focus has always been on uh, trying to prevent or mitigate alcohol-related harms. When I was working for the state of Florida, and this is a parallel with every state that uh, out there, I had two primary tools. One was administrative action against the alcoholic beverage license because they held a license issued by the state government. The other was to utilize the criminal law enforcement system because sale of alcohol to a minor, in many cases, sale of alcohol to an intoxicated person is a criminal offense. And both of those would allow a a legal action to be brought against the seller that would be answered in a criminal court. Those two tools proved to be largely ineffective, at least in my view. Uh, Under the administrative issue, beverage retailers often felt that the payment of a $100 or $500 fine was a cost of doing business 
And if they pressed the envelope and were more reckless in their alcohol sales, they would receive far more financial benefit than the costs involved. And in terms of criminal charges, generally the person who was charged was the bartender or the convenience store clerk. It was not the manager or the owner. And in many cases, the manager or the owner considered the clerk or the bartender to be a cog in the wheel, basically a disposable item, and it would not influence their ability or their need to make changes in their operation. When I got involved in the civil justice system, uh, and again, Fred introduced me to that, I saw a great opportunity to use the civil justice system basically as the third leg of a three-leg stool to help regulate the alcoholic beverage industry and encourage and incentivize beverage retailers to do the right thing in terms of following uh, national standards of care and and complying with the law and preventing alcohol-related harms. And I'm sure we'll we'll probe them a little bit more in, in a few minutes. During previous episodes of this show, Mark, we addressed the wide array of harms that stem from improper alcohol use. Which harms do you focus on in your work as an expert witness? The harms that I focus on are those things that are directly related to uh, intoxication. If um, a person under the age of 21 is served alcoholic beverages and is involved in a car crash, for example, or an adult goes to a bar and is served while they are visibly intoxicated, for example, if that's the standard in that state, and they go out and injure someone in an automobile-related crash, I'm involved in that type of case. But it's not just automobile crashes. I've been involved in These types of civil lawsuits are related to improper alcohol service for for, uh, deaths, such as someone is so intoxicated they leave their car running in the garage when they get home and they die or others die of of carbon monoxide poisoning, sexual assaults, uh, homicides, any number of harms that can come from someone's high level of intoxication, which affects their cognitive functioning or their uh, judgment. What's the extent of the problem of alcohol-related accidents and injuries in the U.S., and and how much of that is related to a bar or restaurant or an alcohol retailer? The numbers are staggering in my view, uh, and it's hard to really appreciate the extent of the alcohol-related problems and those problems stemming from alcoholic beverage establishments unless you look at some of these numbers. While we have fewer alcohol-related traffic crashes today than we had, let's say, 15 years ago, we still have a large number of people who die from alcohol-related traffic crashes each year. In uh, in, uh, 2015, we had a little bit over 10,000 people who died from these types of crashes with a cost to society of over $44 billion in damages and future losses. This death rate accounted for nearly one-third of all traffic deaths in the U.S., demonstrating the uh, the size and scope of this problem. Uh, more than 50% of alcohol-related harms in motor vehicles, for example, come from drivers who have just left a bar, restaurant, or other alcohol-serving establishment. So by viewing this as just a simple math issue, we could eliminate 5,000 or more 
unnecessary alcohol-related deaths in, in the United States and perhaps 22 or more mil, uh, billions of dollars in economic costs by holding and helping alcohol, alcoholic beverage retailers uh, sell their product in a lawful and safe manner. Would you amplify, Mark, something you were beginning to discuss before about the various methods of, of responding to irresponsible behavior by a licensee? Well, as I mentioned earlier, you have these, uh, the, the government has two actions that it can take. One is the administrative action against an alcoholic beverage license. The license is issued by the state. And it's conditioned upon the licensee following the law uh, and promoting public safety. As a result of that, the uh, state can suspend, can revoke, uh, or can impose a civil fine against that alcoholic beverage license. So that is one control mechanism that can be used. And states will often utilize this type of process to uh, send a, a larger uh, message to the industry not to serve to underage persons, for example, when they do compliance checks or mystery shopping to determine those businesses that are selling alcohol to persons under the age of 21 as a corrective action tool. The other is the uh, criminal law, and that is if you are a clerk in a convenience store and you sell to a person under 21, or you are a bartender or server in a restaurant in a state where there is a criminal charge for violating the uh, prohibition on serving to an intoxicated person, or even serving to the point of intoxication, there uh, could be a criminal law with which you could be charged as well. And the idea is that if it is against the law, the servers and bartenders and convenience store clerks will refrain from this uh, activity. However, uh, largely the uh, use of administrative and criminal penalties is ineffective in controlling uh, the behavior of beverage retailers uh, and they continue to uh, sell alcohol to persons under the age of 21 or serve intoxicated persons uh, even though there is a law prohibiting that. You know, Mark, one would think that a criminal penalty would be a very powerful deterrent. But uh, we both found in our work in this field over the many years that, first of all, many people working as, as clerks or servers don't even realize that they're creating a criminal violation if they serve someone who's underage or intoxicated. But we've also seen that uh, a lot of, and once it hits the judicial process, uh, we see so many times that the penalty is not assessed against the clerk or server because no one wants to satisfy this young inadvertent, you know, um, felon with a with a permanent record. So so uh, often the the charges are dismissed. Perhaps not in Florida, but it, we've certainly seen this in other places. Uh, and that brings us to the title of today's program: Civil Litigation and Restorative Justice for Alcohol-Related Harm. And your guest, Attorney Fred Tromberg. Mark, would you introduce Fred, uh, Fred to us? Oh, certainly. Uh, Fred is a uh, board-certified civil trial lawyer and has been practicing in Jacksonville for 40 years. And as I mentioned, uh, he and I worked a number of years ago on an important case in Florida, and that was my introduction to Fred and to the civil justice system. 
as a result of that, I'm very proud to call Fred my uh, my friend, and he graciously agreed to appear with us on this show to explain uh, the important components of the civil justice system and how it relates to alcohol-related harms. Fred graduated from Brooklyn College of the City of um, City University of New York and the Vermont Law uh, Law School. Uh, he has his own firm here in Jacksonville, specializing in civil trial law, and particularly catastrophic injury and death cases, as well as medical and hospital negligence and commercial litigation. One thing about Fred is that he represents both the plaintiff and the defense so that his point of view is well balanced and not skewed one way or the other. He's an AV, he is AV rated by Martindale Hubble, and he is considered a Florida super lawyer, and he's a former federal and state prosecutor. So welcome, Fred. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Mark, thank you so much. That was a very nice introduction. I appreciate it. You and I have known each other for a while, but I'd like for, to ask you to share with our listeners what drew you to the law and what compelled you to become a trial lawyer. Mark, I was born and raised in New York City, and um, I, my coming of age was in the 60s, uh, quite a turbulent time throughout the country and especially in New York City. Uh, I can remember uh, when I was graduating college back in uh, 1969 that uh, there were riots and lots of anti-war protests. Uh, the war was raging in Vietnam. And um, I also remember that um, we had some major political divides. And I was concerned, of all things, about the environment. I thought that uh, the developers in this country were just stomping all over environmentalists. This is the very beginning, the cusp of the environmental movement in the United States. And I wanted to become an environmental lawyer. Problem was, I didn't have the money for law school. So I went to work for a couple of years, and I was in law enforcement as well. I was in the New York State Narcotic Addiction Control Commission and worked as a narcotics officer and had statewide jurisdiction, but essentially I worked in Queens, a borough of New York City. I got to spend a lot of time in the courthouse, and I saw and uh, interacted with plenty of lawyers, uh, mostly for the, at that time, uh, the assistant district attorneys and prosecutors uh, on the um, state level in the attorney general's office. Uh, I uh, wanted to go to law school and eventually uh, got to uh, apply and did go to Vermont Law School which I'm proud to say is uh, the preeminent environmental law school in the country. And it was a whole lot less expensive to be living and going to school in Vermont and New York City. So I look back on those years, and they were just absolutely wonderful in the 70s. Uh, but I caught a lucky break, and um, I applied to the United States Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C., down there on Constitution Avenue in the Department of Justice, uh, to be law clerk to the United States Attorney. This was during Watergate, and I got very, very, very lucky, triple lucky, and I got the job. I became law clerk to the United States Attorney in Washington during the Watergate trials and appeals, and I became a special assistant United States Attorney as a prosecutor. That kind of opened my eyes to the world of courtroom drama and the, uh, the reality of litigation and the reality of corruption at the highest level. And so I 
just at that point decided to shift away from environmental law, and I decided that I wanted to continue to prosecute because I was enjoying the courtroom. I did that for a while and then went to um, to, to Jacksonville, Florida. I, I moved to Jacksonville. Jacksonville was looking for a prosecutor uh, in the state attorney's office uh, that had courtroom experience, and at that point I did. And I had been a former federal prosecutor, so I was hired uh, here locally in Jacksonville, the 4th Judicial Circuit, all of northeast Florida, to be a prosecutor, and I was assigned quickly uh, to uh, DUI manslaughter and vehicular homicide. So that's how I got started in this area. Well, with your background in uh, vehicular homicide, I can see how that might help you in uh, in dealing with dram shop cases and also uh, support your interest in that type of civil litigation. And notwithstanding all the other good work you do, in focusing on dram shop uh, issues for the purpose of uh, our benefit of our listeners, can you tell us how you typically get involved in an alcohol-related civil lawsuit? Well, I had lots of training and experience in DUI manslaughter cases. And as a result of that, I went through uh, the uh, various schools uh, at the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office in uh, accident investigation, advanced accident investigation, and all the DUI schools. So I learned quite a bit about intoxication. I learned a lot about the uh, the actual factors that are taken into consideration when you're looking at uh, someone under the influence of an alcoholic beverage. Uh, from that point, I started taking in cases where people uh, were either involved in accidents, um, had been injured, or had lost family members uh, as a result of a car crash involving an intoxicated or um, a drunk driver. And when that happened, I started taking on uh, litigation and, and filing lawsuits uh, against the uh, driver that was causing the wreck and or, uh, in some cases, I also uh, sued the bar or the restaurant, in some cases hotel, uh, pizza store. Uh, it, was, it was a variety of folks that I would uh, aim my sights on for what we call restorative justice and compensation for the victim or the victim's family. And Mark, I think we have to take a short break now before you continue your discussion with Fred. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Responsible Retailing Forum is a leader in the industry, bringing together public and private stakeholders, regulatory and enforcement agencies, attorneys general, public health agencies and producers, and community leaders and researchers in order to identify and promulgate best practices for responsible retailing and engage the stakeholders in examinations of responsible retailing policies. For more information on RR Forum or its partners or how your community can get involved, please visit rrforum.org. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. 
Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Alcohol Across America. We'd love to hear from you with questions and comments about our program. Please send an email to crever at rrforum.org. That's K-R-E-V-O-R at rrforum.org. Now back to Alcohol Across America. Welcome back to Alcohol Across America. Thank you for rejoining us. If you recall, uh, we uh, entered this segment talking to attorney Fred Tromberg about dealing with dram shop lawsuits or dealing with civil lawsuits pertaining to alcohol-related harms. And Fred was talking about his uh, how he got in, uh, involved in, in those types of cases. And Fred, I wanted to kind of follow up. If someone has an alcohol has suffered an alcohol-related harm and they reach out to a, um, a, a trial lawyer to, uh, to seek some sort of restorative justice, um, how would you or how would another trial lawyer assess that case to determine whether it is an appropriate case to uh, bring into the civil justice system? We typically use a three-prong approach, Mark, and the way it works is as follows. First, we look at liability, then we look at causation, and then we look at harm, which lawyers refer to as damages. Uh, I'm going to take them in that order so that it's easy to see it through our eyes as lawyers. One, we want to see if there has been a breach of duty, if there has been a departure from the standard of duty or care that we believe uh, leads to causation and in turn to the harm, damages, and what has happened that has caused the the problems that uh, we typically see, which are usually a car wreck, sometimes a sexual assault, sometimes uh, all uh, all kinds of injuries that can happen from trip and falls or uh, various uh, other kinds of harm. So in liability, uh, we're looking to uh, actually review the Dram Shop Act that we have here in Florida. I'm a Florida lawyer, and so I look at uh, the statute that deals with it 
And one, I determine if the person who is the at-fault driver or the person that we're uh, targeting is under 21. If that's the case, then that makes it pretty clear if they're uh, drinking and driving that somebody served them under 21, and that service is covered under the Dram Shop statute, and it violates the Dram Shop statute. Number two, we look to see if they're not uh, under 21, if they're an adult, if they are alcoholics, or what the law refers to as habitually addicted to alcoholic beverages. And then we have a very tough road, and that is if the server was uh, serving this person knowingly that they were habitually addicted. That's a real tough road uh, to hoe, but we look at that and we, we start examining in detail by questioning people who were there, and witnesses and so on, what the um, tolerance was of the at-fault driver, uh, his or her actions or his speech, her speech and content, um, and movements, especially balance. And we actually start looking at the the micro uh, seconds of what occurred leading up to the person leaving the establishment, getting in a car, getting on the highway or getting on the road, and then causing the, the wreck. Uh, that certainly is uh, an excellent explanation, and I hope that that has helped our listeners. Another question that seems to be prevalent among people who have suffered some sort of alcohol-related harm is, what will it cost me to bring a civil lawsuit? Uh, what would you tell them? Well, let me, I'll get to the, the question of cost in just a moment because uh, uh, most people, uh, believe it or not, uh, ask that question first. Uh, people are just very concerned about uh, costs. Uh, and I'll give you the brief answer, but I want to get back to the preceding question. The brief answer is we work on a contingency fee basis, which means a percentage of the recovery, and we advance the costs so that we take the costs out of any recovery, uh, whether it's a settlement or a collectible judgment. And if there is no recovery, then there are no fees or costs. That's the short answer. But let me get back to what I was talking about a moment ago. When we look at liability, we also take a look at causation and damages. Causation is obvious. That is to say, the person leaves the establishment and is under the influence of an alcoholic beverage to the extent that his or her normal faculties are impaired. And that's pretty much uh, the, the statute that uh, we deal with all the time. It's a DUI statute. But we look at it kind of holistically and say, okay, where are they going to go? Well, typically, if they can get their car or pickup truck started, they're going to get on the road, uh, and they're going to be driving right next to you and me and everybody else that's listening. And typically, a five, six, seven thousand pounds of steel and glass is going to be uh, driven within three, four, five feet of us at about 100 feet per second on the interstate or on uh, the roads and streets and highways of our country. And that's when the accident is about to happen. This is an accident waiting to happen. It's a catastrophe waiting to happen, and often it does. In some cases, uh, somehow they manage to get home. But in plenty of cases, they don't. And then we, we get involved because the damages are the, the pain and the suffering and the anguish and the loss of enjoyment of life. And obviously in the death cases, we have got the families that are grieving and anguish beyond description when their loved one is dead at the scene as a result of a drunk driver. 
but getting back to the, the, the question that most people ask first, and that is, uh, how much will this cost me? Uh, we work on a percentage. We work on a contingency fee basis. Typically in Florida, it's one-third, and this is according to the Supreme Court guidelines, one-third of the recovery, plus we recoup our costs, and we advance all the costs so the client doesn't receive bills monthly and saying, you know, I just spent $12 on postage, please send me a check. Uh, we don't ask you to uh, give us a MasterCard or a Visa or American Express. We don't ask for any money in advance. We look at the case, size it up, and if we feel there's a reasonable probability of success, we go ahead and take the case on. It's going to require a lot of hours, a lot of input, a lot of costs on our part, but we think it's justified and justifiable, and it's what we do. Your answer indicated what most people, I think, think of in terms of the recovery from a civil lawsuit, and that is uh, money. But do you ever have clients that are searching for some other type of restorative justice other than a money settlement through filing a civil lawsuit? Well, keep in mind a couple of things when we talk about restorative justice and, and compensation. There are many instances just in this area of the law, and it's this is atypical. This is not like many other areas of the law where there is a, a wreck, let's say, at an intersection where somebody runs a stop uh, stoplight or a stop sign. This is not like a failure to yield case or, or driving too close. This is a case where uh, the damages can be not just compensatory, that is, putting the person back together in whole again and compensating for pain, suffering, anguish, loss of enjoyment of life, and all of the monetary losses, but we also can sue for punitive damages, which is to make an example out of the defendant and to punish the defendant. And we have a statute on point that deals with uh, a multiplier of the compensatory damages where we can get a perhaps uh, 200% of compensatory, even 250% and under certain circumstances more. But we can get punitive damages against the defendant for drinking and driving. There is that possibility. Now, I'm not saying that happens in every case, but we can do it uh, if we can uh, in a case that will have no cap on damages. And generally when that happens, that gets the attention of the defendant. Uh, Getting back to your question, though, are there other avenues, other remedies? I think that's what you're asking me. And the answer is yes, there are administrative remedies and that's between the state of Florida and the licensee. And there's also the state attorney's office, and that's the prosecutor. That's my former job and former office. And they would often uh, consider prosecuting when there was underage drinking and driving or underage drinking and uh, service to people who were habitually addicted to alcohol and obviously were uh, getting in their car and getting on the road. So, so far, we've talked about an injury. We've talked about a plaintiff's desire to seek justice. We've talked about how you would get involved in that sort of uh, lawsuit. But the next big hurdle, of course, is actually going to court. What are the, um, uh, what needs to be proven in a dram shop case uh, from a, a broad perspective? And how does that differ in terms of the uh, the level of proof or degree of proof from that of a um, criminal trial with which most people are already aware? 
That's an excellent question, and, and it, it uh, varies, I'm sure, from state to state, so I can only speak to Florida. And let me do that because I think it points up a tremendous difference that some people are aware of, but many people don't understand. And, and as many times as they may watch Law & Order reruns, it's not going to be very specific. Here we go. One, we deal with something called the preponderance of the evidence. What that means is the greater weight of the evidence. If you think in your mind's eye about a scale and the two sides are just exactly even in balance. If you put a feather on one side and you get that balance like 51% to 49%, that's a preponderance of the evidence. That's the greater weight of the evidence. That's, the, that's what we're looking for in a civil justice case, in civil litigation. That's what the jury has to decide, the greater weight of the evidence. And the jury instructions, which is a law that is given to the jurors by the judge, those jury instructions refer to the greater weight of the evidence. In criminal cases, it's completely different. It's much, much more one-sided. And we take a look at the law uh, because we value liberty so much and people are considered absolutely innocent until proven guilty, and hear the words, beyond and to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt. Beyond a reasonable doubt. So beyond a reasonable doubt means that we're looking way past greater weight of the evidence, and it's a very high threshold for criminal prosecutors to achieve, and the jury has to say, you know what, uniformly, we have no reasonable doubt here, and they have to find that there's no reasonable doubt before they can come back with a guilty verdict. Uh, that's very interesting, and I think that many of our listeners uh, appreciate understanding the difference between the level of degree of proof that the jury has to find in a civil case versus a, a criminal case. And that certainly makes the civil case much more attractive, perhaps, as an avenue for restorative justice. Well, I wanted keep to. in mind that there's one more area that I didn't speak about, but I want to, and, and, and I think that the listeners can appreciate this, and that is restorative justice not only takes into consideration civil damages, which I've talked about, pain, suffering, anguish, loss of enjoyment of life, past and future, but it also takes into consideration the monetary losses of the person or persons that have been injured, harmed, or that unfortunately die as a result of uh, someone who's intoxicated causing harm. But in the criminal case, there's also something that we look at, and that is that we try in the criminal cases to make it clear that there are financial harms that occur. And in some cases, uh, judges are able to, when, when it's appropriate, are able to award uh, some money to the victims and victims' families. And in fact, there's even in Jacksonville, for example, right here, we have a program administered by the Attorney General's office where there's money that's set aside by the state uh, for victims' compensation. So there are ways of compensating the victims' families and victims themselves um, through the criminal justice system, although there's no cap on damages when it comes to the civil justice system. Fred, uh, preponderance of evidence raised uh, my eyebrow because that's what got Tom Brady suspended for four days due to Deflategate. Uh, that's right. If, Greater if, weight um, of the evidence. Uh, but what I wondered about is if, there's only a slight preponderance of evidence 
in favor of a, let's say, a guilty verdict versus overwhelming evidence for a guilty verdict? Are the two handled differently? Yes, because one is in civil court where we're only talking about greater weight of the evidence. The other is in criminal court where we're talking about beyond and to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt. If you don't have a unanimous verdict by those jurors saying, yes, it's my verdict that this is beyond a reasonable doubt, then you're not going to get a guilty verdict. You're going to get a not guilty verdict. doesn't mean innocent. It just means that they find this person not guilty. That's why there's a tremendous, uh, uh, every prosecutor looks at it, and of course we all embrace it, and I'm a former prosecutor, so I can tell you that it was just part and parcel of the job and part and parcel of the profession that we embrace the opportunity to prove our case to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt. And jurors understand that. Now, do you have to be 100% and have some kind of videotape uh, production and have, oh, I don't know, ballistics, uh, witnesses, uh, experts. and uh, No, you don't. It's just beyond a reasonable doubt. And we say here in Florida, beyond and to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt, so that the jurors absolutely understand we're talking about a very serious issue that they have to think about and weigh in their minds before they make a decision. Got it. And we'll resume our discussion with Mark and Fred in just a moment. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Responsible Retailing Forum is a leader in the industry, bringing together public and private stakeholders, regulatory and enforcement agencies, attorneys general, public health agencies and producers, and community leaders and researchers in order to identify and promulgate best practices for responsible retailing and engage the stakeholders in examinations of responsible retailing policies. For more information on RR Forum or its partners or how your community can get involved, please visit rrforum.org. How is your company's marketing plan? Could it use a little help? For most businesses, the answer is yes. Tune in each week to Marketing That Won't Break the Bank. Host Janet Kunst and her guests will show you how and where to bring your marketing to the next level. Each show will feature action strategies that you can implement right away and see results. We'll make this easy for you. Start by tuning in every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. You hear about it all the time. Compromises, destructive malware, major breaches. You can't turn on the news without hearing about the latest cyber event. Learn more about cybersecurity, how it has become one of the most significant threats to our national security, and the battle experts undergo every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Task Force 7 Radio with host George Redis is the voice of cybersecurity around the world. Tune in live every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. 
Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Alcohol Across America. We'd love to hear from you with questions and comments about our program. Please send an email to crever at rrforum.org. That's K-R-E-V-O-R at rrforum.org. Now back to Alcohol Across America. Welcome back to Alcohol Across America. When you left us, uh, Brad Crever had just uh, asked Fred a question, and I'd like to ask Fred to continue with his answer, if he would. When a jury hears evidence, and let's just take it in a civil setting for a moment. There's a civil lawsuit. The plaintiff has filed a lawsuit against a defendant seeking money damages, and I'll get to the damages in, in a moment. But when that happens, the jury hears what, what occurred. The, if, for whatever reason, they hear clear and, and obvious and uh, very blatant evidence that the person who is at fault, the, the, the defendant in the case, uh, is uh, someone who was driving under the influence, their normal faculties were clearly impaired, they had been drinking way too much. When that happens, they can't help but say, you know, this is so obvious. This is in the civil case. That when it comes time for damages, it, it really just has an effect on them. They will listen to the instructions. They will follow the instructions, but they're thinking, and we know this from talking to jurors after the fact, that they are thinking that this person was not just negligent, but grossly negligent or perhaps even at the level of willful and wanton reckless disregard, which, by the way, in Florida is the manslaughter standard. Uh, that's a standard from, from manslaughter conviction in criminal court, willful and wanton reckless disregard of life. Now, having said that, in a criminal case, you expect to hear that. The jurors are told, look, you're in a courtroom where we're trying a criminal case and the person is looking at felony charges for DUI manslaughter and possibly 15 years in a Florida state prison. So they're taking it very seriously, and they're listening to every element developed by the prosecutor. This is different than criminal, and civil, rather, and it's you know maybe on a parallel track in some respects, but at the end of the day, the person is going to be found either guilty or not guilty, and if they're found not guilty then they, can, can, they are no longer going to be prosecuted because we can't prosecute them twice because of double jeopardy. The state can't appeal, but the civil case can proceed on a much lower standard of proof. The quantum of proof is the greater weight of the evidence, not beyond the exclusion of every reasonable doubt. Uh, I wanted to uh, share a personal experience uh, that leads to a question about what I just call deep pockets. Uh, the Responsible Retailing Forum has for a number of years now been trying to develop um, 
protocols and programs that assist licensees recognize and refuse service to intoxicated customers, certainly to take action when they recognize it. We had been uh, sending actors exhibiting signs of extreme intoxication to various licensees, and we were doing this in several parts of the country, one of which was just north of, well, the Albuquerque area and north of Albuquerque. One of the places where we sent in an intoxicated actor uh, was willing to serve that person with no problem. Unfortunately, about two months later, the same licensee or a staff member at that establishment served someone whom we did not send in who was clearly intoxicated. And this was part of what became a very famous case when the uh, the person left the convenience store with another six-pack of cold beer and killed himself and three innocent people uh, on a highway on the way home. Uh, the ultimate outcome, clearly this person was intoxicated and negligent, but the ultimate settlement involved the Santa Fe Opera, who was the employer of the of the of the driver who apparently had been on a, a conference and was returning from that conference. So this whole notion of deep pockets and who is held responsible for compensation for the harm caused by DUI. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, there is a concept in Florida, and I can only speak to our state, but you, I'm sure, can extrapolate to other states that have similar, if not the same concept and, and, and legal doctrine, and that's called vicarious liability, and that says that the owner uh, of an establishment or the owner of a business is liable for the uh, acts of the employees that are within the scope of the employee's employment with that um, business owner. So uh, you can have, for example, a trucking company that hauls uh, long distance um, that uh, negligently uh, supervises or trains a driver, and if they knew or should have known that the driver had uh, failed uh, urinalysis and had, let's say, a couple of DUIs, they can be sued for punitive damages. Uh, not uh, just the uh, compensatory damages because they're the owner of the truck or the cab that caused the harm, but yes, they can be sued for compensatory and punitive damages, and that's based upon their notice and knowledge and the foreseeability that someone that's driving for them, an employee or even uh, an independent contractor under certain circumstances, could be uh, uh, under the influence uh, or, and, and driving a company vehicle. Now, uh, it depends. There's not one size fits all when it comes to this kind of uh, analysis. But, yes, liability can be vicarious. And, yes, liability can be looked at, and we always do look at it, in terms of who uh, is responsible for this. And here's our starting point. We know that somebody was playing by the rules and, through no fault of their own, got injured while they were driving. Let's let's just say on the on the highway or on the roadway, and it was as a result of somebody else not playing by the rules. Well, let's figure out who that somebody else was, and if it's more than one, let's look at all the people that were involved and business entities as well. And when we say they weren't playing by the rules, let's take a closer look at what their duties were. If they were supposed to be supervising and they didn't, then that's not playing by the rules. If they were supposed to be training but they didn't, that's not playing by the rules. We look at it that way, and we try to right wrongs thinking about who was not playing by the rules that caused harm to an innocent person. 
Fred, thank you very much for that answer, and I think that that covered uh, what Brad was trying to uh, to determine. I want to kind of follow up in that same vein and ask you, how do juries determine what a case, what a civil lawsuit involving an alcohol-related injury is worth and how they can play a part in this concept of restorative justice? Well, that gets to the issue of damages. And damages is a term that we use all the time here in in, uh, the legal uh, business, but it means, in plain English, from a layman's point of view, the harms, the losses, what what has this uh, this wreck caused the, the the victims? What what are they looking at tangibly and intangibly uh, in terms of monetary and non-monetary losses? What are they looking at? And the law is very well developed, and basically, it falls in the categories of tangible versus intangible, and tangible means typically monetary damages. Uh, That would be the hospital bill, the doctor's bills, uh, rehab, uh, the uh, prescription medication, physical therapy. Uh, It would be the loss of income, and it's also the loss of uh, future income because we know that there are some people that just don't recover. There are paraplegics and quadriplegics and amputees as a result of these tragic accidents, and they're just not going to be able to get back to work. I'm thinking about uh, cases I've, I've seen and handled involving people who are paralyzed as a result of these tragic accidents caused by drunk drivers. Now, uh, having said that, there's also this wide-open area uh, of intangible uh, intangibles that, let's just say, uh, vary from pain, past and future, suffering, uh, anguish, and loss of enjoyment of life. It's almost incalculable. And it's whatever a jury says. There is no cap on damages. It's whatever a jury says, uh, this is what I think uh, a day's worth or a week's worth or a month's worth of pain is, is worth in terms of compensation. Now, judges have... Um, the ultimate say-so on that, in terms of uh, something that we call additor and remittitor, they, they, can, they can add or, or subtract if they think that the numbers are completely out of line. But for the most part, uh, judges are uh, deferential to juries, and juries will listen to what the person has gone through, especially if they're in a wheelchair. Uh, I've had uh, a couple of my clients over the years brought in by... Uh, uh, private ambulance in uh, essentially a, a hospital bed and in the courtroom, and they, you know, once they see what this person has gone through, and we'll show them a day in the life video to see the difference before and after, uh, they will go ahead and compensate that person, not out of sympathy, but out of all of the elements. Uh, certainly, uh, loss of enjoyment of life, anguish, and and pain and suffering are not hard to understand for any person, and we leave it up to the jury to make that decision. Fred, have you ever had a case where you were representing the drunk driver himself or his family, uh, seeking damages for the harm caused to the intoxicated person? No, no, I have not. I'm I'm a former prosecutor and did not handle any criminal defense cases. 
uh, when I was uh, after I left the state attorney's office. But I know that they are out there, and that a, a lot of former prosecutors who are very familiar with the system, like I am, uh, have taken on criminal defense cases and and taken on cases involving people who are intoxicated, who say at a later time I shouldn't have been served, uh, or I was overserved to the point where somebody should have cut me off. I know that goes on. I just don't do those cases. Fred, we know that um, court systems are, are overburdened, largely. How long should a, uh, a plaintiff expect a civil lawsuit and an alcohol-related incident to, uh, to take? And are there alternatives that they can seek to use to, in essence, shortcut the, um, the resolution? The litigation process is... Uh almost always going to take months and sometimes years because it is uh, a process that is just uh, slow by definition. Uh, the wheels of justice do grind slowly, and uh, the, these cases don't get resolved once they're in litigation, typically for uh, at least 6 to 12 months, sometimes double, and I've seen cases triple that length of time. Now, typically in the cases where there are not high insurance limits and there's not a lot of assets, there'll be a structured, uh, there'll be a settlement, there'll be a negotiated resolution, which is just a settlement, and that can happen quickly. In some cases, it can happen in weeks or months. Uh, what I think you are talking about, though, are the other alternatives for dispute resolution, and that would include mediation and arbitration which are two areas of resolution and remedies that are sometimes used. And in every litigation case, to be clear about this, in every case where there's a lawsuit, and this is a civil lawsuit, at least here in Florida, we have laws that say that those cases have to go to mediation. Uh, They're court-ordered to go to mediation to see if a uh, certified mediator can facilitate a resolution, short of trial. And I have one final question before we close this broadcast, and that is considering the approach of the use of administrative action and criminal action to change the behaviors of beverage retailers to comply with the law and promote a responsible alcohol service. Do you believe that the civil justice system can also influence beverage retailer behaviors, and what is the mechanism you see if you believe that? Well, there's no question that the civil justice system is extremely important and a, and a major cog in the wheel, and it's for a couple of reasons. And Let me outline them briefly for you. First, uh, there is a sense uh, among people who have been involved in a wreck that, again, through no fault of their own or injured or lost a loved one, that they're seeking justice, and rightly so. Uh, we encourage them to think that way, and we encourage juries to think that way. Compensation is part of the justice system, and that's why they built the courthouse, to make sure that we have an opportunity to have a trial. It's in our United States Constitution that we have a right to trial. It's in our Florida Constitution that we have a right to a trial uh, by a jury of our peers, and we need to be thinking that way. I happen to be a member of a BOTA. Uh, the uh, American Board of Trial Advocates, and we are very, very pro-trial. We like the idea of having that uh, that constitutional right, 
and that, and and having a, a lawyer represent us in court that can help us assert our rights and seek justice. Now, having said that, there's also a different a parallel path of um, restorative justice that could be considered the criminal justice system, and then there's the administrative a complaint in the administrative system. Uh, the administrative legal system is typically uh, uh, used as part of removing or taking away or in some way sanctioning the license of the licensee who um, was over-serving or served someone under 21. The criminal justice system is based upon the statutes that make it a misdemeanor or felony to do exactly the same thing as we're talking about in the civil case. And it's a kind of a parallel universe. But again, it doesn't get into an award of damages uh, the way the civil justice system does. So at the end of the day, in a criminal justice system, the person is looking at either sanctions or fines or perhaps imprisonment, uh, maybe probation, and there are variations on the sanctions that can be imposed. But in the civil justice system, it's strictly a money money issue, and it's a matter of damages. If the damages are uh, high, that gets the attention of the defendant. Uh, they perhaps might have insurance, but the jury won't find out about that. So if the damages exceed the insurance, then all of a sudden the defendant is responsible, and then we get into an area we call bad faith, which is when the insurance company had the opportunity to settle at or within the policy limits and didn't do so, it may have uh, done done some wrong to its own insured, its own policyholder, by failing to settle within policy limits and being in bad faith. Uh, remember, insurance companies in our state, and I think in every state, but I'll only speak to Florida because I'm a Florida lawyer, have a fiduciary responsibility to their insureds. So the insurance Fred, companies are supposed to settle when they have an opportunity to do so. Fred, we're going to have to stop here. I'm sorry. This is right. tremendously interesting. Mark, thank you again so much. Uh, our next podcast will focus upon college drinking and will be joined by my colleagues uh, who are working on and off campus with these issues. This is Brad Crever for Alcohol Across America. Thank you for joining us this week for Alcohol Across America. Please join Dr. Brad Crever and another weekly guest expert next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until our next program, be safe and have a great week.